Hello, listeners. MIT Catalyst producer Irina Huang here, and I'm excited to welcome you to the final episode of our first season. During these past 12 months, we've had the privilege of sitting down with some phenomenal guests. Especially during these uncertain and often difficult times, it's been such a joy to connect with and hear the stories of fellow MIT alumni, from entrepreneurs to investors, to frontline doctors tackling the COVID-19 pandemic. One thing that all of our guests have in common is that they are all catalysts, trailblazing and making a difference in their field and beyond. Today, we're wrapping up our first season with two special guests that host Julia Yu interviewed last fall, Mohanjit Jolly and Mark Gorenberg. Mohanjit and Mark are both prominent venture capitalists. Mohanjit is a partner at Iron Pillar, former partner at Draper Fisher Jurvetson, and has been investing in technology for decades. Mark is a founder and managing director of Zeta Venture Partners, the first and leading early stage fund focused on AI for enterprise. Both Mark and Mohanjit were technical leaders prior to their careers in venture. In this episode, they talk about the value of flexibility, taking advantage of opportunities, and dispense key advice on getting into the venture space. First up, Julia talks to Mohanjit in Alameda, California. Today, we are on the USS Hornet, and we have Mohanjit Jolly. Mohanjit, can you give us an introduction of yourself? Sure. Uh, Mohanjit Jolly, born and raised in India, but uh, did my high schooling in South Central Los Angeles in the early 1980s, which was an interesting time. MIT Bachelor's and Master's, Core 16, four years working um, primarily for the DOD, uh, making spy cameras for the military in Lexington, Massachusetts, then taking a break, uh, getting my MBA at UCLA, focusing on entrepreneurship and technology management, spending a couple of years at a company called Mattel, actually as a part of a, a rogue MIT group. And our charter was find technologies that could be embedded in toys of the future. So that's what I did uh, for about two years before I got a cold call from a gentleman named Guy Kawasaki, uh, who's, a, who's a well-known speaker, uh, author. He was a chief evangelist at Apple that was, uh, and, and was hired by Steve Jobs back in the 80s when the Mac first came out. In any case, he had started a boutique investment bank called Garage.com in Silicon Valley, he said, stop playing with Barbie dolls in L.A. and come up to Silicon Valley where things are happening. So that's what I did. And I was with him from early 99 uh, till about 2007, initially helping uh, startups raise capital and then pivoting into a seed stage venture fund ourselves called Garage Technology Ventures. So I started writing 250K to, uh, to 500K checks into seed stage technology companies. Uh, in 2007, I ended up actually moving to India and setting up the India office of a firm called Draper Fisher Jurvetson, or DFJ. And uh, they had been investing remotely in India until then, but they needed somebody to set up the office and, and run it as a partner. And that's what I did for five years. So as a result, I'm one of the very few people who has actually done this on two sides of the planet. And, um, and I continue to do so now with my own fund called Iron Pillar, which I launched with uh, a few colleagues in 2016. And we invest in uh, mid-stage technology companies in the U.S.-India corridor uh, across technologies. Great. So you've, you've seen an entrepreneur or two along the way. What, what do you look for uh, when you're investing? What, is, what are kind of the core pillars? So I would say there are four core pillars, um, but I always tell people that we are first and foremost in the people business. So it starts with a team. It's the team, it's the technology slash differentiation. It's obviously some level of traction, uh, and then the market has to be sizable enough so you can create a big enough company. 
Now, one question that entrepreneurs always ask is, it's a chicken and egg problem. I need traction to be able to get capital. I need capital to get traction. So what I always tell them is, surround yourselves with people who give you credibility, who, who can lend their brand, either as an angel investor, as an advisor, before you have anything, before you have a product that you can sell, if you can surround yourselves, uh, and especially, let's say, in the MIT context, my goodness, you have uh, some of the most incredible people. And one thing I think that entrepreneurs don't do enough is, for whatever reason, they feel um, uh, hesitant to reach out, thinking that, oh, my God, am I going to you know, intrude on someone? Or if I'm, if I'm not necessarily well-known to them, what will they think? Forget about all that. Just go do it. Reach out. And what I've seen, even in my career, is if I reached out to somebody within the MIT network... And I said, hey, I need 15 minutes of your time to have a conversation. Nine out of 10 times, the individual says yes. And in almost every case, I had no direct relationship with that individual. So leverage the network, create credibility, and then with that association, others will follow, whether it's capital, whether it's customers, whether it's new team members, et cetera. I want to go back to your uh, background as an engineer. What do, what do you think are the core things from MIT that have helped you in uh, getting to where you are today? You know, my gut says that majority of folks who may have majored in a particular course at MIT are no longer practicing within that course, call it, you know, five or definitely 10 years after they graduate. So one thing that MIT does teach you is, is what I call the, the, the power of questioning. And, and, and you, you question, and then you use that question as well as your problem-solving skills to figure things out over your entire career. Right. So one of the things, obviously, that's facing uh, current students, you know, recent grads, et cetera, is is the is the pace of change accelerating. And therefore, in many cases, the pace of obsolescence also accelerating. So one will have to reinvent his or him or herself multiple times over the course of his or her career. And so from an MIT standpoint, I think two things I would say. One is the network and being able to to rely on people knowing if you're self-aware, you know what you're good at, know, you know what you're not good at, and where you're not good at something, and you have that gap, reaching out to folks, again, within the MIT network to help fill that gap, and then being thoughtful enough and mindful enough to say, you know what, given that these gaps are there or these gaps are coming, what can I be doing today to, to make sure that I'm either gainfully employed or, or you know, I am, I am uh, low on the totem pole in terms of being obsolesced? Right. So so I think it's just uh, those two things. It's, again, one um, being very people centric and the other really around problem solving. That's what we do. I mean, that's what I do in my daily business. Thankfully, I'm surrounded by some of the best people in the world because I always say I get smarter every single day than I was the previous day because I'm meeting entrepreneurs who know so much more about their very domain than I ever will. And so I harness that energy. I do that introspection and say, okay, what can I use that I learned today from this particular entrepreneur to make this world a better place? And in so doing, lift some other folks, uh, you know, in terms of their quality of life, where they may be actually heading towards, again, this obsolescence or this cliff that they may not be aware of, whether it's from a technology standpoint, whether it's from a business model standpoint, or what have you. And one topic that comes up over and over again for entrepreneurs is grittiness. There's a lot of perseverance required, but at what point do you, you know, cut the cord? Like, where's that cliff, right? Where you say, you know what, this is just a, 
maybe this isn't going to work? You know, it's such a good question and one that I don't think is asked often enough. I actually just wrote a blog on this very topic about um, a month ago called Entrepreneurship, the Long Journey, because I've been um, involved with companies that did not, uh, you know, turn successful in two, three, four years. It took a long time. It took eight or 10 or 12 years. And I've also been uh, involved with, with situations where things were going great and then suddenly something happened and went from, you know, a high-flying unicorn to, to virtually nothing. And so this is my, my, you know, hopefully sage advice to entrepreneurs is, you know, it's, it is so easy to get emotionally attached to your baby. It is your baby. You should be emotionally attached, but there has to be a balance of emotion and rationale. So what I mean by that is you have to have milestones. You have to have sort of a, I call it a six-month check-in to say, okay, this is where I expect it to be. This is where I actually am. What is that gap? And is that gap narrowing or is that gap widening over time? And if it's widening, that's clear indication from the market or from your team members or your investors or competitors, whatever, that things are not going the way you were thinking they were going. And so that's a gut check that you need to do to say, okay, at this point, is the market telling me something that I'm you know, I'm, I'm refusing to listen to. And if you take a deep breath and say, yes, the market is sending me a clear signal, maybe it's time to either pivot, in which case you have to have uh, support from your investors and your team members uh, and all of that, or you package it and sell if indeed that's, uh, that's what needs to be done. Or worst case, you shut it down and you say, okay, fine, the product market fit or whatever did not quite happen the way I thought. And let me think about what's next. The last thing you want to do, and I've unfortunately seen, I've seen marriages broken, I've seen divorces happen, uh, just because the entrepreneur was so emotionally attached that, that he or she became married to the startup more so than his or her own family. And that is not something that you really want to you know, ever find yourself doing. And it's especially hard when you see these high-flying unicorns turning from zero to a unicorn status in two, three, four years while you've been sort of slogging it out for 10 or 12 years. It's very, very emotionally depleting, right? And so I think part of the role that I play as an investor is to be that gut check, to be that sounding board to say, hey, you know what, we gave it our best, but it's clear that, that things are not you know, going the right way. Let's think about something else, either pivoting or packaging and selling or just winding it down and, and moving on to other things. Now, I can say that more easily as an investor because I have you know, 10, 15, 20 bets, and this is one company in that portfolio, whereas for the entrepreneur, this is his or her entire life. And often for a number of years. And then you keep thinking, my goodness, my, you know, I'm just around the corner. I'm just around the corner from doing something interesting, doing something interesting. And I think what ends up happening often is that just around the corner, just around the corner means you're basically going in a circle and not realizing it. So I think that would be my advice is to have, you know, you have to have greediness and perseverance and all that but it has to be balanced with these sort of six-month check-ins and gut checks. And it has to come from you. And, and, and barring that, it has to come from your board and your investors as well who need to be very rational about this decision-making. What would you tell yourself from the 90s, knowing what you know now? Uh, what advice would you give yourself as a fresh MIT aerospace engineer? You know, flexibility, I guess, is, is probably the one word that comes to mind. Um, do not be so set in your ways that, that you have blinders on. And, um, 
and never ever think for a second that you know it all. Because, uh, for example, if you're an entrepreneur, I have a rule which I call the 139 rule. 139 rule basically says if you think that you're the only person uh, who has this idea, chances are there are three others. And if you know of at least two others, so three, including yourself, who has this idea, there are at least nine others who are thinking about it. So that healthy paranoia is, um, is, is, is there. So I think flexibility in terms of your approach to anything you do, right, uh, to, to life, to your career. I mean, I have gone through several step functions over my last, you know, 25 plus years since I left MIT. And, and what I always had in mind was um, network like crazy, give back to others without any sort of agenda. And, and that has come back to sort of serve me in a, in, a, in a positive light. And when I've seen sort of these transition points in my career, I guess I've had the, the some would say, you know, there's a fine line between stupidity and courage. But I've, I think I've had the courage to sort of take that leap and go do something. So I did not plan on any of this. But as and when these opportunities arose, um, I had the wherewithal to say, you know what, this this is perfect. This taps into who I am, but also gives me a massive opportunity to grow. So I'm just going to go ahead and do it rather than being very set in my ways and saying, okay, this is the only direction I'm going to go, come what may. I have a question going back to uh, the DFJ opening an office in yeah. India. What was your biggest surprise doing that? Wow. Well, so this is now 2007 in India. Um, and, and so I found myself really being an entrepreneur, being this sort of satellite uh, you know, office, one person initially starting out in a cube in a, um, uh, a shared business office uh, and then eventually setting up, uh, setting up a team and, 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 and my own office. But it's, uh, it was a non-trivial exercise. So, so things like, you know, even getting a location, getting all the registration approvals. And back in the day, uh, you know, you had to uh, actually, there were people who were looking for money under the table to, to set things up. And I was not going to do that. I could not do that because there's something called a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act um, that, that um, you know, I could not, could not fall under. And, and so I just pounded the table and said, I'm not going to do it uh, this way. So I had to find other ways to do it in a, in a very legitimate manner. But again, a non-trivial uh, exercise. And, and showing up in India, by the way, even though I grew up, uh, I was a teenager when I left, I'd never done business there. So that transition was, uh, there was a significant transient that first year. And interestingly enough, uh, the Wall Street Journal did a, a, a piece on me, not because of my acumen or anything like that. They actually highlighted my car. And so my car had been in something like 25 different accidents, all minor, um, over the course of a couple of years. And so it was completely banged up with the taillight, headlight, everything, um, uh, you know, basically broken and, and scratches all over the place. And, 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 and so the, the title was something like, you don't need, you know, an MIT degree, an MBA to survive in, uh, in, in India. You actually need valor and courage to be able to do it because you're going to get banged around uh, quite, quite a bit. So that was, I mean, it was, uh, you know, sort of half jokingly, my wife and I would say uh, to my partners who would visit that I actually need hazard pay because I was, uh, you know, in accidents much more often than my, my American colleagues were. So I just, I just took it all in stride, right? So it, I always uh, say that there are certain uh, situations which will make you cry, 
but crying is not an option. So you smile and you go with it and, and you use that as a learning experience. So the whole sort of India experience of five years uh, you know, has been just that. So no matter what comes my way, and the kids know it as well now, I'll just smile and I'll go through it because I know tomorrow is going to be a better day and I'll survive and I'll live through it, even though it may be somewhat uncomfortable, you know, as I'm going through that particular, uh, you know, minor accident or the power not working or, you know, somebody asking me for money under the table. I love it. I'm going to have to go back and read that article, but that's a very good (laughs) metaphor for life in general. Absolutely. Uh, So last but not least, um, you know, we end all our episodes by asking what your secret sauce is. So what is your investing in entrepreneurs secret sauce? So I don't, I mean, I don't know if there's a secret sauce per se, but one thing I can say is, um, you know, when we moved just like so many immigrants to this country, we had nothing, right? And so I saw my, my parents work, uh, you know, minimum wage jobs. With I still remember the minimum wage back in the early 80s was $3.35 an hour. And, and uh, you know, I know hard work, grit uh, just pays, right? So you just put your heart and soul into it. Uh, things will happen. And, and even if all of this gets taken away, I, I still know that I will be okay. My family will be okay. Uh, because hopefully we've we've put some of these underlying value system or foundation uh, so that they can stand on their own two feet, um, even if, you know, life were to throw a curveball or in Indian terms, we call it a, a googly, which is a, a cricket spin. Um, but, uh, you know, that's what I would say. It's, it's just I have such... Um, you know, perspective on life. I've I've been there. I've uh, when we moved to India, we uh, adopted a, a an orphanage and a school for the blind uh, because I wanted to to have the kids have a perspective that we you know like it or not. And some of your audience may not like this term, but I think we live in a bubble, especially here in Silicon Valley. And it's very very important to for me at least it was to extract ourselves out and uh, and see what the real world is really all about and 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 go and spend time and we would we would spend time in the slums uh, in in bangalore amongst people who had absolutely nothing where a broken toy was the biggest delight a child had in you know going back years uh and 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 so you know as long as you have that perspective and you don't end up drinking a lot of your own kool-aid uh you'll be just fine and and the final thing i will say is you know, I fundamentally believe in the the whole sort of notion of paying it forward. I think we're blessed. We're 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 lucky more than anything else to be where we are, and it would be a travesty if we did not go ahead and and as a result help others who who need it most. Not only you know in our own communities, um, but but overseas to the extent that you have a, a personal connection. And um, and and one of my theses in, in in life is I drink from the innovation fire hose here in Silicon Valley, but I see the impact of those technologies, be it healthcare, education, uh, financial technologies, etc., uh, sustainability uh, on on lives of you know hundreds of millions of people in whether it's India, Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, one of my most successful investments has been a company called Delight Design. It was a Stanford spinout. Uh, makes solar lanterns and home systems for people who are completely off grid, and and it's a hundred million plus revenue company today. But think about it: it's scaling businesses, selling to people who can't afford to pay for anything. But the reason they are scaling so well is because they're solving a real pain point. Right? There's nothing 
if if a child doesn't have light to be able to study and education of course is the foundation to to get out of that poverty so so again going back to you know this this notion of impacting paying it forward you know knowing that uh, that you're lucky to be where you are today i think that's very very crucial i lied one more question what sure. book are you reading right now oh what book am i reading right now um it's it's well it's 21 things about uh, uh the 21st century by um harari right now so so I, I think there's there's a lot going on in the world that we need to be mindful of um and and while i while i love technology i think we have to be uh, again, knowledgeable and, and cognizant of the fact that a lot of these technologies uh, are, are double-edged swords, and so we have responsibility on on using it, uh, you know, wisely and, and for the betterment of, of humanity overall. Next up, Julia's interview with Mark Gorenberg. Mark has been a venture capitalist for 28 years. He's been funding and serving on the boards of numerous successful startups, including Domo, Team, Omniture, AdForce, among dozens of other companies. He is a founder and managing director of Zeta Venture Partners, which was founded in 2013. And it's a first early stage fund focused on the intelligent enterprise and prior to VC, Mark was a software executive, entrepreneur, and member of the first Spark Station team at Sun Microsystems. Thank you so much for being here today, Mark. Thank you, Julia. Could you tell us a little bit more about how MIT has shaped you and or your favorite or worst memory? Well, or maybe how MIT continues to shape me. So, I, you know, I, I was there as a student in the 70s, but... Um, you know, I've I've had the honor and pleasure of being on many committees at MIT over the years, including a number of them today. So, I think I count probably a, at least thirty-five years in going of being at MIT every year. In terms of some of the ways that MIT has shaped me, uh, one is I, I think I, I appreciate people for what they know and what they achieve, and it's been a lesson of excellence attracts more excellence, and MIT certainly is that. And that sense of meritocracy is also true for founders of companies. So I think it gives you – MIT grounding gives you a good eye for picking good founders and, and the companies they built. I'm curious what made you transition from being a software executive to going into venture capital. I had the bug first for entrepreneurship, and that led to the bug for venture capital. So I, I was living in a, a four-bedroom house in Seattle and working for uh, Boeing Computer Systems. We put in the Con Ed Blackout Control Center in New York, and uh, we had great opportunities to continue on. And I remember so vividly, it was like, okay, it's time, it's time to start all over again. You know, Silicon Valley was an amazing place to be, and so we started all over again. Moved to student housing at Stanford, and basically ended up uh, helping to start a company early on out of the AI robotics lab. But then also took the class in venture capital there and started to learn that there was a way to leverage even beyond that. So it was a few years later, and a new venture firm started, and I had the opportunity to join. And uh, so it was a wave of entrepreneurship starting all over, then a wave of venture capital starting all over. But venture capital is a profession where the learning curve never goes away. And it's actually one of the few professions where you're actually compensated 
to be able to push the learning curve forward. And so that's very exciting for those of us who like to have that as your objective. And do you think being an entrepreneur first helped you become a better venture capitalist? I think yes. I think um, I think what you know when I joined the venture capital community, almost all of the venture capitalists came out of the entrepreneurial ranks. There was the importance of having operational experience starting companies. It, the venture capital profession was not as uh, mature as it is today or formalized. And so today, I think that I, I honestly believe the best venture capitalists still start with some level of operating experience. And, under, you know, if you're going to sit in a boardroom, you should see before that how companies actually are built. So what advice would you have for those who say, you know, I want to be a venture capitalist? Would you advise them to be an operator first? Well, in 1983, you know, when I came to the professor who taught venture capital at Stanford, which was Pitch Johnson, one of the sort of uh, venerable leaders of the early days of venture capital, uh, he said, go back to work first. And even though I'd already had, you know, about eight years of experience, went back and that led to starting a company that led to going to Sun at a very at a time when Sun was a preeminent company in the Valley. And then it was after that that I went into venture capital. And I think it was a background that was really well serving. So I would just offer his advice back again, even though it's not as in vogue as it was back in the, in the 80s and 90s. Can you describe what type of investor you are and what you personally look for when you uh, invest or decide to invest in startups? We look for founders who have excellence. I would say excellence over experience because excellence attracts more excellence. That goes back to the sort of the first lesson of MIT. Um, we look for markets. I mean, you want big markets, but you also want markets that are at that time of inflection of commercialization. If you get involved in a market too early, you know, it's not going to get off the ground. It, you know, moving from research to markets to commercialization takes a long period of time. Um, and if you get involved too late, you already have large incumbents, and it's probably very difficult to take market share from them. So timing of the market becomes important. Obviously, having a unique product, positioning of your company versus the other companies so you can possibly be a market leader or at least compete against other startups to be a market leader. Um, partnerships of any kind. And then for us, the most important thing added on top of all that is what we call the data strategy. So I think most of the venture world is still living in the idea of metrics around software as a service, which is, you know, around revenue and marketing metrics. We tend to also look at what we call data metrics. You know, how viable is the data? What data is the most important data for you to have? Are you creating a virtuous loop out of that where you have algorithms and data together that can create an AI-first company? So we tend to look another layer. But we feel that the companies that figure out their data strategy have the best chance to have a barrier to entry and compete against the companies before. What application or what new technology are you most excited about? So we love all our children, right? We love all the companies that we work with, and they're all our favorites because we go through a long, painstaking process to invest. But I'll tell you about our most recent investment because it came out of MIT. So that's a company called Vidya Health. It, it was part of the Martin Trust Center and came out of Delta V last year. It is able to use uh, deep learning to look at lots and lots of images of dentistry to help figure out pathologies that dentists are missing. So it can tell you if you need uh, cavity filled, if you need a root canal, and a lot of pathologies are missed by dentists. 
But what we found out in the due diligence, which was kind of an aha moment, was it really wasn't so much that it that the dentist was missing things. There wasn't a lot of confidence by patients to accept what dentists say. In fact, on average, only about, you know, if your dentist uh, says to you, Julia, you should get a cavity filled, it's probably only about 25% of the time that you're going to accept that. You're more than likely going to say, well, I'll come back again in six months. Let me see how it feels. Or if it's a root canal, you might actually want to go get another opinion. Well, here's the other opinion that's sitting there. It's a it's a, you know, an AI system basically that's telling you back. So so what we found also was that patients seeing the computer predict that and show the progression of the disease actually are much more willing to accept the uh, diagnosis of the dentist. That just made me realize how humans can be rational and irrational, right? We could uh, it's like, who who do we pick and choose to trust, right? Sometimes we trust machines more. Sometimes we trust humans more. Right. So there we are. In terms of healthcare, we're at that point where we believe society will start to trust an AI system to tell people about the projection of their dentistry. And I think we'll see that long progression through healthcare for the next couple of decades. Can you tell us a little bit more about some potential pitfalls for entrepreneurs and early stage startups. How would you advise startups who are kind of just struggling? What are the biggest pitfalls that you see? It's a really good question. I would argue at this stage of a company, the most important thing is to find product market fit, is to really find where that painkiller is. And often companies short shrift that, don't do enough background work, and they immediately jump to sales. And they find that they might be able to sell their product, but they haven't really figured out a strategic beachhead for it that's going to really last. So going through the steps of really doing the work with customers, coming up with the product market fit, figuring out the f- best features to put in your product and involving it hand-in-hand with your customer. So getting out early, doing that, and then um, be able to sell it to the buyers most in need. So sort of step-by-step through that process before you really ramp up sales. So we see entrepreneurs often that ramp up sales too early and they spend too much money on that and then they have to go back to the drawing board. And that's a pretty costly lesson. So that's one. The second one I would argue in this era is finding a way to create a barrier to entry. And that's why we come back to this whole idea of, of data and algorithms and creating a really strategic data moat about what you're doing so that when you go to raise that Series A, basically you're in a really good position to show how you have a barrier to other companies coming in. And that gives you a more optimal solution if you pick the right application to go after. Another one that I would argue is entrepreneurs that don't focus. So, you know, if you're a small company competing against a world of bigger companies, you've got to start with a really laser-like focus on a problem that's going to be solved. And it's a combination of being very strategic but also having that one feature in your product that is that really aha, where the customer just lights up when they see that feature. And it's very tactical usually, but that one feature usually starts to really get the ball rolling for early customers. So I think it's a combination of those. And the only other one I would really point out are a lot of entrepreneurs have trouble adding people to their team and they take on too much themselves and then they they sort of falter from their own weight where instead we've seen some entrepreneurs that you would never think could run a company uh, forever who can because they hire really good people 
as their executives, and those people basically lift them up and help them to really achieve. So I think that the team and the culture that you build early also becomes really important. So it sounds like you look at a combination of quantitative and qualitative factors and not to ignore the people part, right? Because right. you're only as good as your team. Right, right. Can you attract those people to work for you? So in your nearly three decades of experience as a venture capitalist, what have been your top three learnings? I would argue one is that um, companies that get in trouble typically are not going to get better. So you've got to really sort of figure out a process to help move things forward early and not, not let it get too far out of hand. So one is to get ahead of issues, work with founders on that. Many companies have opted to, to sell early, and it's actually been a good thing for them, and it allows the entrepreneur actually to move on too to figure out the next thing that they want to do. The second one I would say more positively is early on the importance of hiring really great executives, really balancing out, as we talked about, balancing out that team really early, you know, always staying ahead of what you need and being in, and being in that position. The third one is to figure out that strategic beachhead uh, that we talked about before. I think those are some those are some of the big lessons. I want to push a little bit more on your second point around the people and mm-hmm. rounding out that team. Do you have a framework that you use? Uh, how do you evaluate whether a team is, you know, complementary and they're functioning and they're working well? You know, in general, the teams go back and forth between whether they need domain experience or whether they need excellence. And most teams are a combination of the two. But I would argue very early on, you need a really good leader of engineering. Uh, You need the founder to kind of figure out that product market fit. And once you've sort of worked on that and got early customers, then you want to round out product marketing. Particularly, a lot of companies jump to sales before marketing. They really should should bring marketing in first and, and figure out a more strategic way to move forward. Sales, and then over time, you know, they'll bring in uh, customer support leaders. They'll bring in uh, usually outsource CFOs first before they move to full-time CFOs. Often uh, partnerships are early on are very important, and you want people that are working on that. So, um, you know, in the beginning, you'll work with people that are really have the passion and the mission. Over time, you'll end up hiring people that have already proven that they can do something and add a good complement to the team. And then also, uh, over time, a lot of these companies have moved to the I First, they typically start with relatively flat organizations. Then over time, they might move to an organization where, you know, you have um, an entrepreneur that is uh, really a gas pedal and really passionate, and they may want to add somebody to, um, to their ranks that's a little bit more of a break. They don't go off the rails. So you want to be able to drive as fast as you can, but not drive off, off the cliff. I see. So it's kind of a, a combination of personalities and skill sets. That's right. And sounds like overarching, hopefully, there's self-awareness along the way. Right. Well. And, and, you know, and you want entrepreneurs that are um, willing to accept people's experience. And, and, um, and if they have that chemistry, which is so important early on in a company. So the, the one thing I would say is be careful of your first investment. If your first investment goes really well, you're going to have a great career. 
if your first couple of investments really bog you down, it's going to be a long slog. It's a first impression, huh? That's it's a first impression, but it also gets you allows you to put some some personal um, self of satisfaction in your tank and gives you sort of the impetus, I think, to just keep going. So make your first investment. Be careful. Make your first. That's my advice to people joining venture capital. Make sure your first investment has gone through a, a really rigorous test. Don't jump at things that you just want to get something on the board and you're not quite sure. Be sure of your first investment. It'll make a big difference in your career. And for closing, what is your startup and investor secret sauce? We practice what we preach about focus. So we really look for focus in entrepreneurs. And since we're a focused venture fund, I think we've, we've set out to do the same. So focus is one. I think I talked about before, you know, certainly we look at uh, our purposeful thing about data strategy and AI risk and is the market ready and will they have the opportunity to build a barrier to entry? Um, what kind of data are they collecting and what kind of data are they automatically generating in their application? But I think the the other side of it is all these companies need to be strategic and they need to create a strategic beachhead, but there has to be some feature that when you're looking at it as a potential customer, a light bulb goes on over your head. And if we see that, that typically becomes the rationale for buying it. And so I think those are our secret sauce lessons. Thank you so much for tuning in to the season finale episode of MIT Catalysts. This episode was hosted by Julia Yu and produced by me, Irina Huang. Special thanks to our guests, Mohanji Jolly and Mark Gorenberg, for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks also to the MIT Club of Northern California, which sponsors this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like our show, please share widely with friends and family, or even leave us a review. We're so glad you joined us for our inaugural season of MIT Catalysts, and we really hope that you tune in for season two. We're looking forward to shaking things up a bit and can't wait to introduce you to the guests we have planned for next season. Stay safe and be well.